Emma McAdam, thank you so much for joining us. I'm happy to be here. Thanks so much for having me. I'll tell you, and, and this is all in all sincerity, I've done a lot of reading on anxiety. We have some in our family. By far, the most helpful site has been your YouTube site. By far. I mean, just, it just seems to resonate with me. But anyway, just really helpful. Uh, I, I, and thank you so much for doing that for everybody and, and making that available. Oh, that makes me like so happy to hear too, because my goal is just to make these resources really accessible. And there's something about the video format that, that helps people. I always try and just boil things down in the most helpful little package I can. So that like makes me so happy because that's why I do it, right? Like right. it helps some people. So yeah, that, and that's funny. That's our mission too, to help as many people as we can. Yeah. I mean, that's, if I go to my grave with that, I feel like it's been a life well lived. Yeah. And I've seen your channel too. It, it, it's really fun. And um, I can tell you're doing that too. You're making this information available for people. So it's cool. It's a uh, shared mission. Uh, let's go light up her website and her uh, YouTube channel. So it's Therapy in a Nutshell. Mm -hmm. Therapy in a Nutshell. And do you want me to mention the website or not? Yeah, go for it. Yeah. Uh, so the website is therapy, www.therapynutshell, therapynutshell com. You have a class that you're now it's going to be on YouTube or is it on YouTube already? Yeah, I have a course. It's called how to process your emotions and it's a 30 skill course. And I am publishing all the sections to YouTube, but if you want to buy the whole course now, you can buy it with the worksheets and the extra resources and the bonus content without any ads on my website. Yeah. And, and, and we were talking before it's only $49. That's amazing. That's, right. That's really a bargain. I mean, so yeah, my, my goal is just to make mental health resources as accessible as possible. So many people need them. And so this is my, my way of doing that. So you can watch it with ads on my YouTube channel. You can watch it without ads on my website. Yeah, we, um, uh, we deal with a pharmacist that we have on our show a lot. He's a, fr mm -hmm. a good friend. And he was talking about anxiety, how it just exploded this year that they've never before have, have prescribed so many medications. Yeah. Are, so it's really been a tough year. I, I'm sure people, people are really struggling. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, people were struggling before the pandemic pandemic, but it's definitely right. made it harder. Yeah. It, it enhanced things. So, well, do you mind if I get into my questions? Let's do it. Let's jump in. All right. Let, let's first, this is the, the new one we were just talking about. Is there a genetic component to anxiety? Yes, absolutely. And so one of the things I just want to clarify right off the bat is, in my opinion, anxiety is not an inherently negative trait. So of course, there's a genetic component to anxiety because anxiety is composed of two parts, the stress response and the worry, our thoughts about things that might happen. So the stress response is known as the fight, flight, freeze response. And that's what makes it so that if a tiger jumps out of a bush at you, then your heart starts pumping, you uh, pump out adrenaline and cortisol. These are stress hormones, and that makes you have this reaction that primes you for action, right? So that's the stress response. And so that stress response helps us run away from a tiger, fight, or punch the tiger in the nose, fight, or freeze, right? The fight, flight, freeze response. Sure. So the first thing we should understand about anxiety is anxiety is not inherently a negative thing, even though when we talk about anxiety like an anxiety disorder, it's something that's really uncomfortable or it can interfere with our life when it gets disordered. So when you look at, you know, is anxiety genetic? Yes, it's wired into our body and it's meant to help us. So sure. the two aspects of anxiety, the stress response and the worry response, our thoughts of anxiety, our thoughts of danger, that can help us survive. So for example, if my kids are a little bit anxious around the road and there's cars driving up and down the road, they might think twice before crossing the road. And that can be a helpful 
reaction. Now, that being said, if you take the whole population, there's some people who are more sensitive to threats or more sensitive to situations, or they're better, something about their brain is, makes them really good about thinking through every possible worst case scenario. Sure. And that would make them be more likely to worry, or that would make them be more likely to feel anxious. And there's some people with a little bit more rigid brain type, and this is also genetic, um, that would make them more likely to develop obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD. Sure. And so there's some interesting studies showing that there are a group of more sensitive people and some people who are more likely to develop an anxiety disorder. And there's some studies showing that people, for example, with blonde hair and blue eyes are more likely to develop a social anxiety disorder. Really? So, yeah. So there's oh, some interesting correlations. Yeah. Oh but God. at the same time, when we think about anxiety, if you look at people with extreme anxiety, they tend to, you know, develop disorders. But people with just who are more sensitive to anxiety or more sensitive in general, they're also more aware of people around them. They're also more attuned to the feelings and thoughts of what's going on. And you look at mothers, for example, mothers are more anxious. They're going to be right. more cautious with their kids and be more likely to keep their kids safe. And you look on average, men are less anxious not always, but on average, and they might be more likely to be the group of people who are going to be out hunting for game in the ancient societies sure. or being warriors. Excuse me. And um, if you look at the extremely unanxious group, so the genetically less sensitive to anxiety group, these people can tend to be disordered on a different level. So these people tend to be disordered um, on, on a different way. So they could turn into like psychopaths. People with right. extremely okay. low anxiety are less sensitive to the people around them. They worry less about hurting other people. I read it. Yeah. I read an example about a girl who had no anxiety and she, this is a crazy story, but she actually got raped. And then she asked the guy who raped her to, to drive her home. I mean, uh -huh. she had no fear, no anxiety, no. Yeah. Like, it was weird. So. Yeah. So, so there's so there's definitely a genetic a genetic aspect, but we have to put that into the whole big picture of like it's also not necessarily a negative thing. Right. And yeah. that's a great th way to look at it because people feel like, oh my god, I have this now, mm -hmm. <laughs> and I'm, I'm destined to be yeah. an anxious about things. So. Right. Yeah. Can you talk about things that tend to reinforce anxiety or enhance it and maybe ways to diminish it? Yeah. Yep. So when we um, resist anxiety or when we tell ourselves, you know, anxiety is a terrible thing that I'm experiencing when we label it as negative or bad, or when we label all normal anxiety as disordered. So like you look at these teenagers who are like, oh my gosh, I feel so anxious about giving this presentation in school. That must mean I have anxiety. And then sure. they give themselves this label of like, I'm an anxiety disordered human. This is who I am. I'll be this way forever. And the only option that limits our options so when we label anxiety as bad or dangerous, that limits our options to things like avoid, like, oh, I can't do that presentation, or suppress, oh, I can't feel this way, or um, escape, right? Like anything to do to try and distract ourselves or make it go away. When we get caught in these chronic cycles of distraction and avoidance and suppression, that can sometimes make anxiety feel worse, like panic attacks. Panic attacks are usually a result of trying to force yourself not to feel anxiety, sure. <laughs> like not allowing yourself to feel anxiety. So you start to feel something in your stomach and you're like, oh my gosh, 
Am I sick? What's the matter with me? What's going on? Is this anxiety? Am I going to have an anxiety attack? What if I pass out? And then you just start cycling and spiraling. Whereas if you took that anxiety sensation and said, oh, hello, hello, anxiety sensation, this is uncomfortable, right? So we shift the labeling from this is terrible, this is horrible, I have to escape it, to naming it as, oh, this is a sensation I'm experiencing. Let me describe it. Let me breathe into it. Let me explore it. And then something else you can do, um, this is a, a practice from acceptance and commitment therapy, and it's called willingness. So it's this idea of like allowing myself to feel what I am feeling. It's not saying I like anxiety or that I want anxiety, but like I am feeling anxiety. So my options are avoid it to the point that it ruins my life. Like I'm not going to go to school anymore. I'm not going to be social anymore or allow it to be there and still give that presentation and, and still go to social activities, even if they make you a little anxious. I, and I thought that was one of the most helpful advices, uh, pieces of advice you gave. And you were talking about the parasympathetic system and the sympathetic system and, yeah. and how the system will work for you if you approach the fear and find out I didn't die from it and, and I'm still alive. And then your system calms down. And yeah, that, you know, I've done that in my whole life because I, I was I thought when I was growing up, I was shy and mm-hmm. you know, I don't even call it anxiety. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, it was, so, you know, socially. And I but once I started approaching it, it, it would go away. That's so, right. Uh, yep. Yep. And that's, that's the anxiety cycle. A lot of people don't know this, but basically when your brain perceives a threat, it triggers that fight, flight, freeze response, that anxiety response. So what you're talking about is this anxiety cycle. And if in that moment we avoid something, so if, if it's a school presentation, we avoid it, then our anxiety goes away for a second. We get this reward, this relief right. in our brain. And then our brain learns, whoa, that must have actually been dangerous, like physically dangerous to do that presentation. So thank goodness I escaped it. I survived. And your brain learns that the only reason you survived is because you escaped that presentation. And then the brain says, I want to make my human survive again. So it increases your anxiety about presentations the next time. I found that so helpful. I really do that whole thought process. And I had never seen that before. So it's such a simple idea. And to be honest, everything everything on my channel is not like I invented this. Like I'm just taking information from acceptance and commitment therapy and from, I mean, this brilliant therapist at BYU, whose name is Kat Green. I I attended a seminar by her and that's where I kind of boiled that concept down. This is just skills that people aren't aware of. And so, yeah. And so, so with that anxiety cycle, you asked, um, what can we do to make it better? The the very first thing that you just talked about is letting ourselves face it, letting ourselves face things and say, it's okay to feel anxious because it's worth it to me. It's worth it to me to do yeah. this presentation or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You, I thought maybe we'd just segue into breathing, plays such an important role. And you were an article for us um, mm-hmm. that, by the way, it was a big hit. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, I think yeah, it had, like, 18,000 view, views. Oh, all right. Our article. That's great. Uh, yeah. But um, I, I believe you talked about some breathing in that. Mm-hmm. Vagus nerve. And- yeah. So breathing is a really simple way to remind your brain that you're safe. 
So with the fight, flight, freeze response, that's uh, your nervous system is triggering this sympathetic reaction is what it's called. And that's when um, your heart rate goes up and your breathing gets short and shallow. You get all that adrenaline and cortisol and your muscles get tight and your hands get cold and sweaty and your stomach hurts. That is the fight, flight, freeze response. And the opposite response is the parasympathetic response. And so our body just has this natural counterbalancing ability to turn off anxiety when we're safe. Our body was not built to like make us anxious and then just leave us there. So we're supposed to go through this natural cycle of like getting excited or getting scared and performing and then relaxing. And so that's the parasympathetic response. It's called rest and digest or feed and breed. And it's oh. where, you, yeah, it's where your body naturally resolves those um the it, it it works through those stress chemicals and it loosens up your muscles and it helps you feel relaxed and it turns your digestion and your immune system back on so um a very you have simple, a favorite breathing method that you like to use or mm -hmm, yeah very simple breathing method that turns us on it's just belly breathing right so if sure. um the listeners right now would like to try this um i mean if you're driving keep your eyes on the road but otherwise <laughs> like just try breathing in through your nose slowly and let your belly come out and then breathe out through your mouth do that a couple times and that sends the message to your body i'm safe it's okay to relax now, I don't know if you saw my question on nose breathing versus mouth breathing. I just, I've been reading some interesting articles about it. And, and uh, I was very much a mouth breather. Mm -hmm. And I've been working on becoming a nose breather. Yeah. And it's amazing. My blood pressure dropped 10 points. I mean, really? it was the only thing that I had changed. And it was mm -hmm. shocking to me. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, breathing in through your nose, actually, um, your your body is more designed to breathe through your nose and it does it triggers that parasympathetic response which does it lowers heart rate lowers blood pressure that's really fascinating and um i can't remember the name of the book i think it's called breath i think often, that's the one i think i yeah. read that one. Uh -huh, the, was, uh, the reason i can't remember because there's breathing breath there, yeah. there were a bunch of books very similar that's where I'm at too. The author, he spent a week with his nose plugged up. Yes, he, that's the yeah, one. I think it's called Breath. I yeah. uh, we can reference it in the show notes or whatever. You know, but. Another uh, partner mm -hmm. did it. They mm -hmm. locked their noses and then they locked their mouth. I mean, yeah, and they just tested how it impacted their physiology. And breathing right. slowly through your nose changes your physiology, and it can it can turn off anxiety to a degree. Right, mm -hmm. I, and I find it it's just amazing to me. I, I, it was really difficult. I'm a, I'm a runner and I've been mm -hmm. trying to run with doing that. And I, I can't when I'm really going uphill or something like that, but otherwise yeah. I can't. my running is so much more relaxed. That's so, fascinating. That's yeah, fascinating. It, it was fascinating. I thought it, I'm probably my biggest lesson I've learned this year is because I was breather. So that's cool. Yeah. And, and the cool thing about uh, belly breathing or diaphragmatic breathing is you can do it anywhere. If you're sitting in a meeting, you can keep sure. doing your meeting and you can just notice it and just breathe, like take a, a deep breath with your belly poking out and people won't really notice. I mean, it, well, I, I found a, uh, it really was helpful in golf. You know, I get mm -hmm. all, all excited, <laughs> all of my anxiety about golf with them, golf with friends. You want to golf really well. And, and I just I start nose breathing and belly breathing. You know, and it just calmed me down. What a, yep. what a stranger world to be in. So, right. <laughs> um, you want to talk about an exercise you use called locus of control? 
Yeah. Yeah. This is a really simple exercise. So um, we've talked a little bit about how anxiety is about um, our body's danger response. And when we um, think of something as dangerous, like if we just imagine something going poorly tomorrow, that creates an anxiety response right here in our present moment in our body. So one of the ways we can clear up that anxiety response is by drawing and writing things down. Like uh, Nick Wignall says, never worry in your head. Always try and worry on paper. And so one of the ways you can clear up, like, am I actually in danger? Is there something I need to do about this problem? Is there something I need to do differently? Is to simply take out a piece of paper and I draw like a Venn diagram, two circles that overlap. And in the one circle, I put what is in my control and I just write down everything I can do. And on the other side, I write down what's not in my control and I write down everything I can't do. And then in the middle where those circles overlap, I put like what's in my influence. So for example, with um, politics, uh, what's not in my control? Who the other 300 million people vote in as president? But what's in my control? I can, I can, I can vote, I can get informed, I can, um, I can uh, like campaign with people, I can volunteer, I can educate. And so it's just like, once you clarify that, then your brain doesn't keep popping up that question over and over again. Oh, is there something I need to do about this? Is this awful? Is this horrible? And you just clarify and simplify. That can, that can really help people clear up some anxiety and stress. Yeah, if you want to see a good visualization of this, they should go to your YouTube channel because you had a nice video on it. And it, it kind of helps a little bit to see the you drawing. And, and yeah, so, uh, I thought that was a great exercise, too. I mean, I think I, I think people it's surprising to me as a therapist, how such simple activities like for me, this is something I do in therapy all the time. If you were sitting in therapy with me, I am drawing and diagramming in therapy all the time because people can't these problems get overwhelming. And when we can't solve a huge overwhelming problem we get stuck in the stress response instead of shifting to that parasympathetic response. And so it's just such a simple activity. If you Google locus of control on therapy in a nutshell on YouTube, you'll find it. Um, sure. yeah. yeah. And um, unfortunately I let my six-year-old daughter do my hair for that video. So it's pretty funny looking, <laughs> <laughs> but that's okay. There's still good content. I'm sure you look great yet. Cause I didn't notice that's for sure because I'm a man. Yeah. So what should you do if you're anxious about being anxious? Mm-hmm. You know, you, you had a history of it and you're like, oh my God, mm-hmm. here it comes again. You know? Yep. Yep. Like you're like, um, you're used to having it come on and it really messing up your life. Right. One of the things, one of the things um, that I think is helpful is learning to understand that anxiety sometimes serves a function and like getting educated about how anxiety can be helpful. And then noticing how it just really isn't that helpful to get anxious about anxiety, even though it's easy and it's hard to stop that cycle. And then if you get anxious about anxiety, I would recommend that you try a very simple but not easy experiment where when your anxiety comes on, you clarify your values. So what that means is like, for example, um, I actually get anxious public speaking. I get anxious, um, you know, making YouTube videos. but I still do it because it matters to me. Right. And so people might feel anxious about going to a party, but they still want to have friends or they might get anxious about um, being around dogs, but they have a family member with a dog. So you clarify your values and say, well, I care about this presentation or I care about, you know, putting out helpful videos in the world. You clarify your values and then you, um, Remind yourself that anxiety is uncomfortable, but it's not actually harmful. Anxiety avoidance will screw up your life. Like if you stop going to social activities, that's harmful. But the anxiety itself is not harmful. It's uncomfortable. 
but it's not harmful. So you say this, this, this is uncomfortable, but it's not going to hurt me. And then you say, bring it on. And you just say, what can I do to make myself as anxious as possible? Bring it on anxiety. What do your worst. And you just try this experiment a couple of times, do your worst, make me as anxious as possible. And I'm still going to do that presentation. Or you are nervous around dogs and you say, bring it on. I can feel as anxious as a 10 on the anxiety scale and I can still survive. And if you do that a couple of times, your brain's going to learn that anxiety is not dangerous. Sure. Actually, I, yeah, I read a, an author who talked about he does something embarrassing every day. Yeah. I mean, and that it just helps train him not to worry about things when, I mean, he's done That's it to awesome. himself. And makes it, he makes it through it. So, you know, I, I like to, I, and I don't know where, in what context you were talking about this, but you were talking about, like, sometimes you feel anxious, you don't don't know why, and you kind of go through a list, maybe start writing down a list of what might be, and it could be a lot of micro things, you mm-hmm. know, and they all coming together to make a macro anxiety. Yeah, so, yeah, if you're anxious and you don't know why. I mean, I get this question a lot and this can get diagnosed as generalized anxiety disorder. And then people think, oh, the reason I'm, I'm anxious is because I have this disorder. Right. But but with mental health diagnoses, what people need to understand is the disorder does not cause the symptoms. The symptoms clustered together are simply a description. Like we just create this common language around a group of symptoms. So unlike a medical diagnosis, like if you get diagnosed with the flu, it tells you, oh, the flu is causing you to throw up. But with mental health, it's saying, oh, this is a cluster of symptoms. So people get diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. All that really tells you is you are experiencing symptoms of anxiety and you don't necessarily know why. <laughs> sure. And so if you're experiencing anxiety and you don't know why, a lot of times, in my opinion, so I use acceptance and commitment therapy. And the main idea behind this is that micro avoidance feeds anxiety. So tiny little sure. moments of avoidance and distraction are potentially feeding um, your anxiety. So you might want to look at your life and say, well, what's unresolved? What am I unsure about? Am I uncertain about, you know, if I'm, am I uncertain about what I'm doing with my work or am I uncertain about my relationship and, and start writing it down? Now that would not include though, like you were, to, I believe I saw one of your videos on like kind of daily habits mm-hmm. and you avoid the news, I believe. Uh, <laughs> I know a lot of people and I do too. Yeah. Uh-huh. It, it, just, it doesn't help me, you know? And mm-hmm. so I'm avoiding something like that Mm-hmm. You know, that's really not the same thing, but. Well, that's a good point because, so I make a really, so let's talk about the difference between avoidance and choice because avoidance is something that's an emotional reaction. So I have an emotional reaction to news. I'm just going to avoid it. I'm not going to think about it. And honestly, we don't really need news in my life. I don't value news in my life. So that, yeah, like that's, that can, um, that can be an intentional choice, but there's a difference between choosing to not include something in your life based on your values. That's another acceptance commitment therapy term, but, um, and avoiding it because it makes you anxious. I do, I do intentionally choose to, um, limit my news to a couple of sources a day in the afternoon. I try not to start my day off with letting someone else tell me what to be anxious about first yes, thing in the exactly. morning. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's yep. funny. I, my wife loves the news. So she'll mm. have a on downstairs and I'll I'll be stretching getting ready for my run I'm like 
it's the first thing I hear. And it's like right away, start ramping things up, you know? It's That's like, right. You can feel those like adrenal yeah. glands just start pumping, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. It's, uh, but I'm glad you clarified that. That's really helpful. So your thoughts on caffeine and anxiety. Do you mind if I just ask you about that? Yeah, caffeine is the number one most used psychoactive substance in the whole world. It crosses the blood-brain barrier in seconds. So caffeine impacts your brain very quickly. And people don't know, but for some people who are more sensitive to it, um, a cup of coffee in the morning can impact you and your anxiety levels for up to two days. I I read that you said that and I was like, Mm -hmm. wow, because I always thought it was like, don't drink after two o'clock in the afternoon or something like that. Yeah. And you can develop a tolerance to the alerting effects of caffeine, but not necessarily to the anxiety um, effects of caffeine. So some people are just fine. They can drink caffeine um, all the time and it really isn't going to impact their anxiety. And some people, so caffeine um, turns off the calming a calming neurotransmitter in your brain. Caffeine turns that off a calming, relaxing thing. And that's why you feel so alert, but it turns off a calming thing in your brain. So that can really contribute to anxiety. It also creates some other physiological effects, right? Like, um, I mean, it impacts your heart and impacts some other things. So I, what I do recommend, mm-hmm. sorry, go ahead. No, that's what I found. It, it, I, I mean, I was getting, it's, maybe I, it wasn't this caused by the caffeine, but when I stopped it, it went away. I like a little arrhythmia. Uh-huh. And, of course, sleep issue. I mean, and mm-hmm. of course that can affect everything else if you're not sleeping well and uh, caffeine will do it to me. That's for sure. If, yeah. If yeah. Yeah. So I think a lot of people, they think of anxiety as something in their head, but at least half of anxiety is in your body. And so they don't realize that sleep and caffeine might be causing an anxiety disorder. It's not genetics. It's not your, you know, like a defective human being. It's just simply your body's like, oh my gosh, I'm on high alert all the time. Gotcha. (laughs) So so for people with anxiety, I do recommend they do a seven day trial. And this might sound terrible, but a seven day trial. So the first two days you're getting a seven day trial of of no caffeine. And the first two days you might feel really tired. And then the next two days, you might start feeling like a little bit tired. And by the end of seven days, just check and see, is my anxiety gone down? And if gotcha. it has, you know that that's impacting you. And uh, caffeine can also impact um, drug interaction sometimes. So sure. Yeah. I, I just recommend people try that. Well, I've heard, I mean, I've had a lot of friends that were drinking a lot of caffeine and they got off and they had severe headaches or severe mm-hmm. headaches for a couple of days. And mm-hmm. then that was a sign that they need to be off caffeine. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's pretty uncomfortable to go off caffeine when you've been using it for a long time. Right. Um, right. But so, it might be worth it for some people. So I don't know if you like this question or not, but if, if you had to pick one book uh, for anxiety, is there one that you really, I mean, for the lay person, you know? Yeah, I absolutely do. I absolutely do. Let me see if I've got it right here. Uh, I don't see it. Um, it is called. It's called Get Out of Your Mind and Into Your Life. It's by Stephen Hayes. It's, uh, he's the guy who basically founded Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. Oh. Mm-hmm. And it's, um, it's just got tons of practical exercises. So during this interview, I've described some things like willingness and values and some other things. And he just walks you through an exercise that makes them click. So it's not so much like a, oh, just read this book and think about it. It's a book that's like got 200 exercises in it. Nice. Um, and it's a great book. Um, for me, well, it's, so it's really changed my life. Yeah. We'll put it in the link below, uh, in the mm-hmm. comments below uh, or in the comment section. And uh, 
information section. So, and they do have a version for teens as well, and it's just like a, a much shorter read. So, if you don't have time to read this book, you could read the teen version, and it goes sure. through the same, a lot of the same stuff. Teens don't like to read, do they? <laughs> <laughs> nope. So, do you want to talk about what is grounding? the kind of the bottom-up approach. Yeah, yeah. So for a long time, therapy has really been focused on um, cognitive behavioral therapy. That's been the gold standard mm -hmm. of mental health treatment, and it still is. It's still a great approach. Um, but with cognitive behavioral therapy, you really focus on changing how you think. And there's a lot of ways that we think that contribute to anxiety. Like, for example, if you're constantly catastrophizing and thinking, what if I fail? That's going to tell your body you're in danger and it's going to trigger that anxiety response. However, so, so cognitive behavioral therapy treats thoughts and thinking patterns. However, in the last decade, there's been a real addition of body-based treatment for trauma and anxiety and other disorders. And what that means is basically, I mean, so when you think a scary thought, it can trigger that physiological response in your body. But if your body's tight and your body's tense, that reinforces that in your brain and tells your brain to be anxious. So if you have a tight muscles, or if you have a headache, that can make you more anxious. So this bottom-up approach to therapy treats trauma and anxiety disorders by using what they call bottom-up approach. So when you calm your body, it sends a message to your brain, hey, I'm safe, go ahead and calm down. And then your brain starts thinking nicer thoughts and then your body starts calming down more and it really can trigger that um, calming cycle. So a grounding technique would be something as simple as just noticing right now, if you're sitting, notice the chair pressing up against you. If your feet are on the floor, notice what it feels like to have your feet on the floor. And grounding is all about kind of getting in your body. For the listeners right now, I mean, if you're not driving, go ahead and touch, put your hands on your legs and just feel what it feels like to have your hands on your thighs. Notice what it feels like for, to have the chair press up against you. And the reason this works, the reason this generally, if you do this slowly, can turn on that parasympathetic response is because almost always the present moment is actually safe. Sure. Where we are right now. And we're creating our anxiety with thoughts of future danger past danger so would breathing kind of fall into that category of grounding yep and, absolutely mm -hmm. and absolutely. also that oh i was just gonna say that exercise where uh they have you tighten up a muscle and relax it would that be in, in yep that? yep so there i have about 30 grounding videos on my youtube channel you can watch them for free there's a grounding playlist but yeah that so that one where you clench your muscles and relax them is called progressive muscle relaxation that's right, that's right. Um, and that would be like one of my top 10 exercises for someone experiencing anxiety like you should learn how to do this and it's as simple as um, if you want to try it right now you just clench your hands really tight or you can pull your shoulders in up to your ears clench up really tight and then relax and there's something about that that works a lot better than just telling yourself, just relax. <laughs> and yeah. I think it has to do with like leaning into our anxiety. Like if you lean into that tension, then you remind yourself, oh, I have control of my muscles. And then you lean out of it and then your muscles relax. So that's progressive muscle relaxation. That's another grounding technique. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I found that quite often you don't realize the muscles are tense until you mm -hmm. do that. And, mm -hmm. and I also saw a study where it was very helpful. It was the number one technique that worked, worked for prisoners. Mm. Uh, prison. that, uh, that was the most relaxing thing they were able to do. 
Oh, that's so, fascinating. I don't doubt yeah, it. I, I think it's one of the most effective techniques. So yep, that's an example of a grounding technique because you're getting back in your body and then your body sends that message to your brain. I'm safe. It's okay. And then your brain is like, cool. I'll chill out a little bit. <laughs> I can back off a little bit. So yeah. Yeah. I know we're jumping all over here and you're doing such a great job with it, but uh, I guess we kind of talked about this is exposure therapy and exposure hierarchy for anxiety. Yeah. Um, so exposure therapy simply means um, facing your fears, but it can get uh, like, there's a lot of, with exposure therapy, there's a lot of things you can do to make it more effective. So um, exposure therapy trains your brain to learn that you're safe when you're actually safe. Like for example, people who just force themselves to do public speaking, even if they're anxious about it, eventually get less anxious about public speaking because their brain just learns like no one killed me yet. Like I'm good. Sure. Yep. <laughs> I'm still and alive. So, uh huh. Yep. And so, with exposure therapy, um, it's a really important skill actually for generalized anxiety disorder and especially things like OCD and phobias. Um, but just learning to face those those fears is really important. But it's hard to do, and we want to face our fears. the The most effective way to face your fears, if you imagine three zones: the comfort zone, or the avoid the, the avoidance zone. That's that's one zone. The comfort avoidance zone, and then mm -hmm. there's the growth zone. And then there's the panic zone. If we m try and face our fears and get into the panic zone too quickly and we don't have the right support, like with a licensed therapist, with a good skilled therapist, you can go into the panic zone and work through it and be okay. But I would not recommend people doing this on, on their own necessarily. Sure. What we're trying to do with the exposure therapy, if you want to do exposure therapy on yourself, you find a way to face your fears in the growth zone. And usually that means um, scaffolding or breaking tasks down. So scaffolding means adding support and breaking tasks down means doing it in smaller little steps. And I think this is a really essential skill for parents of kids with anxiety. So if you have a child who's like, oh my gosh, I'm so anxious about school, they feel like their options are either force their kid to just go to school and then the kid's kind of sure. stuck in the panic zone at school and hating it, or let your kid not go to school and then your kid's stuck in the avoidance zone gotcha. and that anxiety is getting reinforced. So with, for example, with a, a parent whose kid is um, anxious about going to school, um, an exposure hierarchy would be looking at like, what are the easiest things about going to school and what are the hardest things? And you put them on a scale from the easiest to the hardest and, and you face them little by little. Now that one's a little bit of a difficult example. So let me use an example of someone who's afraid of getting a vaccine because that's kind of relevant right now, right? Sure, exactly, yeah. <laughs> so, so if you're terrified of needles, an exposure hierarchy would look like um, sitting with a therapist and talking about needles and just saying the word needle. Mm -hmm. And then the next step on that hierarchy would be looking at a picture of a needle. And the next step would be looking at a picture of a needle injecting an apple. Sure. And then the next step would be um, having a needle in a room with you, like someone bringing in like a diabetic needle, like a small needle, and you could look at it or you could. And then the next step would be touching that needle. And you just, when you do exposure therapy, you stay on the lowest level of this hierarchy. I'm like making pictures with my hands of this ladder, but like it, we visualize this all the time as a ladder. And so in therapy, we would have you draw out a ladder and break a difficult task down into 10 tiny little steps and um, start with the very smallest. And you start with the smallest and you do it so many times that it gets boring for you. 
Like your brain uh-huh. learns, like looking at pictures of needles and talking about needles is just boring. Like the anxiety response is gone. And then you do that again. And then you do that again. And then eventually you would move to like where you injected an apple with a needle. <laughs> and then you did that like a hundred yeah. times until you're so bored of injecting an apple with a needle. You're like, okay, can we just like get the shot? You know? <laughs> yeah. I remember reading one time that if uh, you were exposed to a tornado every day, eventually you wouldn't have any anxiety about it because it's, it's there it's been your entire life every a tornado comes every day and yeah. somebody gets killed it's, yeah uh, that's just life but uh, it's that's it's, right yeah yeah because our brain learns that something is dangerous when we avoid it our right. brain learns when we think about it but we don't face it that's basically like us doing a subtle form of avoidance and the reason humans get anxiety and zebras don't is because we have such an amazing ability to imagine danger and then distract ourselves without resolving it. Like we have a natural ability to resolve, for example, trauma. If someone experiences trauma, we have a natural inborn ability to resolve that trauma through shaking and crying and jiggling and wiggling and freaking out and calming ourselves down. But what we do instead is we force ourselves to distract and avoid and be calm and not shake and cry and have that stress response and then, um, or or try not to think about it. And then our brain is like, but we need to process this. And it keeps bringing it up and up and up. I see. So if someone's had a traumatic experience that they basically have to relive it in their mind, is that the way? I, I really don't know. That's a great it. question. That's a great question. And I don't want it. To, I don't want to. I'm glad you asked that because I don't want to make it seem so simple um, because th- so that's how CBT used to do therapy was simply exposure therapy. Talk about your trauma over and over again. Sure. Unfortunately, what was happening is people were talking about their trauma with a very tight body. So their body was reinforcing the danger message while their brain was talking about trauma. So that trauma would get reinforced because they were in the panic zone. Gotcha. So what they're finding now, the leading researchers are finding is that um, pairing body-based treatment with talk therapy is one of the most effective ways to treat trauma. So things like yoga has been shown to be more effective at treating PTSD than any medication. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Wow. And like deep breathing and these parasympathetic turning on techniques, these all come from the leading trauma therapy researchers. So, so we basically have to help people reprocess their trauma in the growth zone instead of the panic zone, which is difficult because when you think about horrific things, it's hard, hard not, not to, to get yeah, the body stuff react, mm-hmm. yeah. have that body reaction. Yeah, exactly. Now you've talked about catastrophizing. Um, mm-hmm. uh, what are some means to handle it? Um, you know, well, if, as a really bad example, what if there really is something bad happening? Mm-hmm. Let's say you have cancer or or a family member has cancer. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. Or are you just kind of stuck? Or <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. So catastrophizing refers to um, a specific uh, cognitive distortion is what they're called. Um, so uh, David Burns developed cognitive behavioral therapy, and he identified a, a couple patterns of thinking that people have that make them feel more anxious. And catastrophizing is one of them. It's when you think about the worst case scenario, and then you assume that it's most likely reality, that right. oh, something horrible is going to happen for sure. And then that triggers that stress response in your body right here in the present moment. Now, you presented two scenarios there. So A lot of times catastrophizing convinces us that something that's not reality is reality. So in that situation, um, like you're like, oh my gosh, everyone's going to hate me. 
right? Uh, That's an example of catastrophizing. Everyone is going to hate me no matter what. This is truth. So then you notice like you notice, oh, that's a cognitive distortion. With acceptance and commitment therapy, you, you would use cognitive diffusion skills, which you can learn in that book I mentioned, where you say, oh, mind, thank you for that thought. Thanks for churning out unhelpful thoughts for me, but that thought doesn't help me live my values. So I'm gonna choose to shift my attention to something more helpful. With cognitive behavioral therapy, or if you're practicing this on yourself, you would learn to change how you think, replace that thought with something a little bit more helpful or a little bit more truthful. So you'd say, well, um, you know, that thought, I mean, most likely not everyone is going to hate me. Like right. most likely, maybe one person might, they might not, but it's not true that everyone is for sure <laughs> going to hate me. Sure. So challenge that thought, notice that thought. And then I, I, think, I think when we habitually rely on distorted thinking, I think that can serve a function for us. It can help excuse us from taking difficult behavior sometimes. So I, I like to this is complicated, but I like to encourage people to see like, oh, does, does thinking that way do something for you? Does it give you an excuse to avoid going somewhere that you otherwise gotcha. would have wanted to go? Mm-hmm. And so challenge that thought, notice the thought, label the thought, challenge the thought, replace the thought, shift your attention to what you want to be thinking about. And that's where mindfulness skills come in. You can learn to kind of shift your attention to like, what's most helpful for me? Does that thought help me? I, probably not, <laughs> you know? Sure and value-based living. And then, you know, the second scenario you mentioned is like, oh, something bad really is happening. Happening, right. Or something bad is likely to happen. And that's not a cognitive distortion. Right. That's like, um, life is hard sometimes. Exactly. And uh, I think that that really requires a different, different approach. And I have made a video on that. It's called Risk Acceptance and Valued Living. And, and the idea about behind that is, we each need to choose what we're going to do with the risks that are out there. And there are no zero risk options. There are no zero risk options. Staying home on your couch and never moving risks losing friendships and opportunities and going for a drive risks something happening. Right. So like one essential part of anxiety treatment is accepting that there is risk and saying, hello, anxiety, I feel you. I feel you, anxiety. And um, I worry about, for example, if you're worried about getting in a car crash, you say, but I value driving to work. So I'm going to accept feeling this uncomfortable sensation while living the life I value. You just keep shifting it back to that. And I, you know, I'm a rock climber. I'm not Alex Honnold, right? So if if anyone's (laughs) familiar with Alex Honnold, he free soloed El Capitan. Oh my gosh. That without any ropes. And he made a very intentional choice that doing that incredible athletic and mental feat was within his values and the risk that was there. He chose that and he accepted that as being worthwhile to him. Whereas me personally, when I climb, I rope up and I risk a rock falling on my head or I risk getting a sprained ankle. Sure. I, I don't risk. I mean, I've, I've climbed thousands of times and we've never had a serious accident because I choose a different level of risk. Got you. And so, Makes sense. so that's a little bit different, but like when it comes to a friend having cancer and catastrophizing, I would say like, keep shifting your attention. And that's a mindfulness skill, right? Your, your mind is going to make out our minds are word machines. Our minds pump out all these thoughts all the time. Helpful thoughts, unhelpful thoughts, intrusive thoughts, scary thoughts, happy thoughts, value-based thoughts. And if you learn to watch those thoughts, you'll start to see that your mind just throws out a whole bunch of stuff. 
And what we pay attention to, we get more of. And that's how neuroplasticity works. Whatever we pay attention to, our brain puts more energy into building new neural pathways and making those thicker and broader. And what we um, avoid, distract, freak out about, or pay a ton of attention to, our brain puts more energy into. So if we want to shift from catastrophizing all the time to having a little bit more peaceful of a mind, we need to think, well, what would I like to be thinking? My friend has cancer. What would I, what would be most helpful for me? Um, I value love. I value uh, caring and compassion. And I have to actively accept that loving someone comes with some anxiety or you say, well, what can I do about it? You do the locus of control. What can I do about it? Well, I can call them. I can send them notes. I can make them food, you know, and you just, there's so many skills. Anxiety is not simple, but there's a lot we can do about it. Do you, now you mentioned neuroplasticity just for the layperson, you know, basically that's the brain. It's not static. It's that's it's right. Long. Yeah. 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 So neural means brain and plasticity means moldable. And our brains are very flexible and very moldable. Our brains um, change all the time. There's research showing that eight weeks of therapy can actually change the physical size of the amygdala and the hippocampus. These are structures inside of your brain. So change just sitting in a room and talking with someone can change your brain physical structures. And what we practice develops these neural pathways that get thicker and broader and easier to use. And what we just like kind of acknowledge and say, okay, like I'm not going to pay attention to you or what we don't use gets trimmed. So I used to speak Spanish. Uh, 15 years ago, I lived in Argentina. I was pretty fluent. (laughs) Haven't used it much. And my brain's like, we don't need those neural pathways anymore. And it's trimming them. But if we practice mindfulness, I mean, there's research showing with with new modern imaging, we can see the people who practice meditation get thicker neural pathways in their emotion processing and their cognitive processing structures in their brain. Do you meditate? Oh, my goodness. I have such a hard time meditating. Um, It's so hard for me. I do practice mindfulness at least five or six times a day. So mindfulness is where you slow down and just pay attention to the present moment and become gotcha. really aware of that. And I use mindfulness practices. So mindfulness includes non-judgmental attitude, present moment um, awareness, uh, curious beginner's mind, and a few other like practical skills. And I use those daily. I try to use those daily and especially when I'm struggling. But when I try to like, like I've downloaded Headspace, they have a great app that has great meditations on it. I get through about two weeks of that and I just have such a hard time doing it. So (laughs) I'm I'm with you. I I'm actually fairly, I consider myself actually pretty good at it. I mean, Uh but I, I don't, I don't know. I just don't feel like I was getting the benefit out of it. I just, I felt like I was, I didn't want to spend that part of the time of day doing it. And I, a lot of time I feel kind of meditative when I just wake up in the morning, I lay down and I start stretching and just relax. I'm, yeah, I'm kind of grounded and so. I, I, and when I when you tell me that, it doesn't surprise me because you run. Yeah. Right. 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 And for me, like, I feel like I'm totally in a state of flow when I'm like climbing, hiking, sure. biking. And I, yeah. I try and do that without listening to anything because it lets my brain just, I feel like it lets my brain clear out the junk. I don't know. Yeah, well, and why don't you talk about the exercise and, mm-hmm. and anxiety? That's uh, obviously yeah. a... Uh, important topic. 
Yeah, I think a lot of people, when they think of anxiety, like if they just read kind of the pop psychology articles out there, they think, oh, this is permanent, I'm broken, and uh, there's nothing you can do about it, you know? And the truth is, we can really, really powerfully impact our mental state through a lot of kind of basic things. And exercise has been shown through rigorous research to be as effective as any medication at treating mild to moderate anxiety and, and is still very effective at treating severe anxiety. So um, a lot of people who maybe don't enjoy exercising, uh, I would really recommend you try finding just five minute walks, like time during your day to do a five minute walk, because even that can be helpful. But yeah, yoga, running, high intensity exercise, but even like seven minutes of exercise a day is really helpful with anxiety. And the reason this works is because when you look at the anxiety response, most of it's in your body. That stress response is your body pumping out these stress chemicals, which are meant to perform in a physical task. So in the past, if you were late to something, you would need to walk faster. So your body would pump out these stress chemicals and you'd perform a little better and you'd breathe a little faster and you'd walk a little faster to get where you were going. Or if um, in the past, if the danger that was threatening you was you were going to go hungry that year, your body would pump out a bunch of stress chemicals and you would sleep less and you would hoe your farm, like you would, you would work your farm with more energy. And when you did those physical activities, the stress response would get burned off. It would naturally resolve. But now we're faced with all these modern mental stressors, my email inbox, for example. (laughs) And so then when you resolve the the stressor of your email inbox, you look at your emails and there's like 500 emails. And I don't have that many, but I have a lot. And um, then your body pumps out that physical reaction, the adrenaline and the cortisol. And then you resolve your email inbox by answering 500 emails. And then your body still has the adrenaline and cortisol floating around. So the only way to really resolve that is through physical activity. And, you know, um, we've become such a sitting society. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's, you know, you're not getting any activity, like you said, to, to burn it off. And it's funny, we're having an expert on back pain on our channel. He's, he's, he's honestly probably the foremost expert on back pain in the world. And mm-hmm. I know one thing he recommends is four times a day, uh, like after meals or whatever, walk, 10, 15 minutes. And yeah. obviously that would help with anxiety too. Mm-hmm. I mean, just breaking it up and especially get out in nature. That's right. Uh, yeah. Nature's really good too. Yep. And that's, yeah, I'd love that. I think, I think we think of anxiety as being in our mind, but it's in our bodies and we have to take care of our bodies if we want to manage it. Just real quickly, last question. I, um, I didn't have this on the list, but yeah, being that you spoke of that, um, I, obviously food must play a role in anxiety Um, Mm -hmm. you you want to just talk briefly about that yeah for sure and I think people should know I mean so when we want to treat and when we want to improve mental health it's important to look at the body as a large part of that so sleep really impacts our anxiety levels Um, exercise really impacts our anxiety levels and then food can too and our brain it's not just a mind it's a five pound chunk of fat and proteins and all sorts of stuff and it needs physical building blocks to function well so some people who are diagnosed for example with a depressive disorder they're actually um so again with the depressive disorder we're saying this is a cluster of symptoms but they're not saying what the cause is because we don't know what is the cause of an individual's depression so sometimes that is um, anemia or sometimes it's a vitamin d deficiency where they're just not getting the nutrients they need to to function healthily so 
with anxiety, there are some things that can make anxiety worse, like caffeine and um, inflammation is associated with anxiety. So if you have food allergies or if you um, eat a lot of sugar, that can influence your anxiety levels or drops in blood sugar levels. So if you're having kind of like inconsistent eating, that can influence anxiety. And then some things that have been shown to be helpful are just stuff that you probably already know, right? Eat more vegetables, eat more fiber. Um, there's a real close connection to the gut and the brain. So um, prebiotics, which include fiber, probiotics, which include, um, you know, live organisms in your gut, yogurt and stuff, kimchi, fermented foods, those can be really helpful. Sauerkraut, that can be helpful. Your body is really intricately connected in so many ways. And we could probably spend like six hours. I couldn't teach this, but I've been to a four hour course on the gut brain connection. And it's like, there's so much going on in there. Um, that impacts mental health in a, in a really powerful way. So for like the very simplest thing that people should do, if they want to consider improving their anxiety by nutrition is adding more dark leafy greens into their diet. Sure. Yep, absolutely. Um, making sure that they have adequate magnesium levels. Some people, when they start taking calcium supplements, especially later in life, can um, that can deplete their magnesium levels, and that's associated with anxiety disorders, OCD, and things like that. And um, always talk with your doctor, please, before considering any of these changes to your supplements. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, and just eating vitamin, yeah. vitamin mm -hmm. D also, mm -hmm. uh, especially for us in the areas where we don't have vitamin D during the winter very much. That's right. Yeah. Vitamin D and vitamin D production. So getting out in the sunlight, it's hard for your body to metabolize vitamin D from what I understand, but yeah, taking vitamin D supplements. And there's some other things that have limited research showing effectiveness um, for some people. So fish oil has been disproven as a, as a panacea, but is that the right word? Fish oil has been yeah. disproven as a cure-all, but right. um, it's still helpful for some people who experience chronic inflammation is what they're showing, at least what I've heard most recently. So yeah, I would consider multivitamin. I would consider magnesium. I would consider um, lots of leafy greens, lots of vegetables, lots of fiber. I would consider uh, probiotics. Are you familiar with the FODMAP diet? Mm -mm. Oh, it's, it's interesting. Um, both Mike and I went on it for a while. Um, it, it actually, the idea is that you actually, there's certain um, like fructans and something that can cause your gut to become very uh, bloated and upset and uh, you go on the diet for a while and then you actually go back onto the foods gradually. And uh, mm. it helped us tremendously, both of us. Um, That's interesting. Yeah, it's, it's, it's good for people who have like irritable bowel syndrome or, or something along the line, but even just regular old bloating. So, yeah. But, um, Some of the doctors I've spoken with um, specifically my brother, who's a doctor, but um, they, they think in the next 50 years, we are going to gain so much information about, I mean, basically when we say depression diagnosis or an anxiety diagnosis, this is a shotgun, right? We do not know what is causing the individual's diagnosis. And it could be a food allergy and it could be a genetic right. issue, it could be trauma and it could be how we're thinking. And it could be just that our body makes more cortisol. And but the food aspect and the nutrition aspect and the biology aspect, I think in the next 50 years, we're going to learn a lot more about the gut. I agree hundred percent. I, I think, yeah. I, I, and I think you're going to be able to individualize um, yeah. treatments to, to the point where you can, you, know, you have this deficiency or you have this DNA that mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I recently I recently took like a DNA third party analysis of my DNA and they were like, well, this marker here tends to indicate people have not me specifically, but this marker here tends to indicate people tend to have a deficiency in or a, a difficulty metabolizing folate. So you might want to increase your folate consumption. Interesting. So the problem is with these companies, I think we're going to get there, but the research and the peer reviewed research is not there yet. So they're awesome. kind of saying, well, here's the five supplements you need to take and we sell them. And, <laughs> you know, but I think in 20 years, I think we'll be able to look at someone's DNA and say, well, this nutrient deficiency might be impacting your mental health. Well, I, am, I want to be respectful of your time. I do want to mention your YouTube channel again, Therapy in a <laughs> Nutshell, just excellent. I mean, in, if you watch Emma today, you'll get some more of what she uh, talks about and she, she does a great job. Um, and she also has the website, uh, therapynutshell.com, www.therapynutshell.com. And she does have her course, How to Process Your Emotions. And uh, thank you so much for being on. And Thank you uh, for having me. It's been fun. All right. We'll see you.